One of the key attributes I look for in friends is an open mind with an ability to learn new things and evolve, even change opinions. While some folks respect being the same as they've always been, I'm not one of those people. I'm a pretty active learner. And active learning is also a healthy trait for a cannabis cultivator to have. For as long as any of us have been alive, we've had to learn cultivation in secret, picking up hints from print magazines, the guy at the gardening store, random folks at parties, and if we're lucky, maybe a mentor in the cannabis underground. Eventually, the internet and forums came about, and that has been great for spreading both good and bad information about growing. We're in a period now where cultivators have the opportunity to partner more and more with institutional scientists to compare our cultivation recipes to established science to develop new, modern, best practices for growing cannabis. One thing for sure, as cultivators, the opportunity to partner with professional soil and plant scientists looking to help us grow our best plants ever is extraordinary and will change how cannabis is cultivated forever. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we are giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. Jeff is author of the award-winning Teaming With series of books. That's T-E-A-M, teaming as in partnership. Teeming with Microbes, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web, Teeming with Nutrients, The Organic Gardener's Guide to Optimizing Plant Nutrition, Teeming with Fungi, The Organic Grower's Guide to Mycorrhiza, and coming out next month, September 2022, Teeming with Bacteria, The Organic Gardener's Guide to Endophytic Bacteria and the Rhizophagy Cycle. Now, I got an opportunity to read an advanced copy for this episode, and it's a really great book. Mind-blowing, honestly. You'll get a taste of it today. Jeff also wrote DIY Autoflowering Cannabis, An Easy Way to Grow Your Own. Links to all Jeff's books are on the page for episode 96 on Shaping Fire. Jeff writes the longest-running gardening column in the United States for the Alaska Dispatch, now for over 40 years. He's also a lawyer and former radio and TV show host. Jeff has been on Shaping Fire before, too. Episode 21 on Teaming with Microbes and Fungi. Episode 47 at Shaping Fire Live in Portland, Oregon, with additional special guest Seth Crawford on the breeding and use of modern autoflowers. And finally, on episode 53, to talk about his recent book on autoflowering cannabis for new home growers and cannabis patients. Today, though, during set one, we will review a bit of what we know about bacteria generally and the importance of bacteria in and on cannabis seeds. During the second set, we explore the rhizophagy cycle in serious detail. And in the third set, we talk about specific methods to put this new understanding of endophytic bacteria to work for us in the garden. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Jeff. I am so excited to be here. You can only imagine. Well, it's always great to have you on the show. And, you know, since we're friends outside of the show as well, it's nice to hear your voice because there hasn't been as much opportunity to, you know, see other cannabis professionals around the country like during this uh, COVID craziness. And so it's, it's, it's actually nice to hear a good friend. So welcome, welcome. Really? 
I agree, and and uh, hopefully this this stuff will pass, and we'll be we'll be meeting again in person. Amen. All right. So you know, it's always been the teaming with trilogy. You first you did teaming with microbes, and then it was teaming with nutrients, and then it was teaming with fungi, and and then you know, and then you switched over and you did an autoflower book. But now suddenly you're back with a fourth book in what we all know is a trilogy. So did you always know that there was going to be a fourth book eventually, or did you? just become inspired after learning more about bacteria oh i you know you never you never think about the next book uh and in fact you know, once you write a book you never think you're ever going to do it again it's a very difficult process you have to go down in that little rabbit hole and 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 stay down there and write it but you know when i wrote the first book teaming with microbes i did it because i i was upset that nobody really understood and was talking about dr elaine ingham's soil food web concepts uh, this book I got excited about after talking to Dr. James White uh, because it adds a whole new dimension to the soil food web uh, and, and just creates a completely different picture uh, and raises new questions which, which we'll be able to study and experiment with uh, and become better growers. So, so I, I wasn't expecting it uh, when I came across the subject matter. Uh, it flipped me out to the point where I knew I had to really investigate it. And then when I discovered that it had some, some, some real possibilities for growers out there, uh, it became a necessity to write the book. You know, when I was trying to figure out how to refer to the series, now that there's four in the series, I actually <laughs> looked up, you know, if a trilogy is three books, what is four books? And you've got two, there are two options. There's a tetralogy or a quadrilogy. Do you already, have you chosen one of those? What do you use I to have, describe four books? I, you know, I haven't really figured it out yet. Uh, because I, I I also try to figure out what I use to sign the books, <laughs> and so I haven't really come come to a decision. But it's going to be one of those two words, probably. <laughs> right on. So um, when we've talked before, um, you know, you've described like reading the series, right? For 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 those of us who have been with you since the beginning, you know, you put mm -hmm. out teaming with microbes, and it was an easy read. It was a fun read, and we learned a hell of a lot. And and honestly, it really made the the you know microbe life and the soil food web much more accessible to a lot of us in cannabis cultivation. And then your second book, Teeming with Nutrients, was also highly educative. But as you've said before, it's a little bit of a heavier lift as far as a read goes. There's a lot more mm -hmm. um, uh, vocabulary, numerical science, shall we say, than the Teeming with Microbes. And then Teeming with Fungi, again, was uh, a, you know, a, a lot of uh, you know, biological storytelling. And it was things that we could do stuff right about, you know, right away. And so, you know, the the various books have got like different heft of like of of difficulty in reading like where on that scale do you find this new book on bacteria well on one level i find it uh you know, i find it very simple to understand but on the other level it's the most complicated and, and the reason is because it, it does talk about bacteria we're, we're only familiar with bacteria in a general sense in a, in a health sense uh, and 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 so when you start using bacterial names and have to spell them out and things like that, it becomes much more difficult. And then when you start dealing with uh, an organism that's so small that we really don't study it as a society, we don't study it in school other than that's a bacteria, that little dot, uh, you know, you got to learn some new stuff. And I had to teach myself and and I figured, uh, you know, I probably had to teach the reader as well before I could get into the real subject matter 
uh, of what bacteria do for us with regard to plants. You know, that's, that's, a, that's good, in, you know, good, well put, um, because you're right. You know, I, when I was reading your book, um, and thank you for sending me it, uh, the, you know, the first half of it is a bit of, um, you know, refresher of uh, high school biology. A lot of stuff I hadn't thought about in a long time, but it is absolutely necessary for the second half of the book, which w- is like, you know, getting into a race car. It goes fast and it's thrilling and it's absolutely crazy. The things that that you that you learn from the book, but you really do need to be reminded what you know. You know, I mean, I, I haven't thought about gram positive and gram negative things in a, lo- <laughs> a long, long time. So, right, um, right. Uh, one other thing that we should hit on before we get into the meat of the topic, uh, just a piece of voca- vocabulary. Um, uh, would you discuss the difference between the words bacteria and bacterium? Right. Uh, and this is really, really key, and it's one of the one of the reasons why people really can't understand bacteria uh, in a general sense unless they really concentrate. Bacterium is an individual bacteria. Bacteria are the population of bacteria. So the way I like to to look at it, when most people think about bacteria, they are thinking about their car in a driveway. That car is the bacteria. No. That's the bacterium. When you say bacteria, you're thinking about the the parking lot at the Atlantic, uh, you know, air, the Atlanta airport. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. Uh, so, so those two concepts are key, and and we often slip into talking about bacteria. There's hardly ever uh, uh, a bacterium. Uh, it's just one of those things. They multiply every twenty minutes. And uh, there are so many of them that even when you're talking about an individual kind of bacterium, you're really talking about bacteria. Uh, And what I like to tell people to do, and it's one of those things that I wasn't able to do in the book, if you Google bacteria on on a needle, uh, you'll end up with a picture (laughs) of bacteria on the tip of a needle. And it's it's just a mind blower. I didn't want to pay for the picture to put it in the book, uh, so so I'm just telling you about it now. Unbelievable how small they are and how many they are. And so so really, what we're talking about when we when we we're talking here, we're talking about bacteria multiples, uh, even though we refer to bacterium to describe the individual and what its parts do, et cetera, et cetera. You never see an individual. You always see the population. Great. So let's let's push a little more on that size uh, aspect of it because um, uh, you, you know some of the examples that you give um, in the book of how small an individual bacterium is. It's it's really remarkable where you know a, you know a head of a needle is going to have thousands of them, which which really right. tells me that that this is an organism that we're going to be interacting with um, in in the huge numbers. Yeah, uh, the, you know, they're uh, two micro, uh, 0.2 micrometers. Uh, I think the example I give in the book is is that if you, uh, first of all, if you look at a human hair, human hair is about uh, 18 to 180 micrometers. Uh, so you, they're really small, obviously. But, but if you made a bacterium the size of a spruce bark beetle or a bark beetle and you and and the the tree itself uh, you know was the normal size that's sort of what you're looking at uh, you know the hair versus the little teeny they're teeny god they're small uh, and and 
they're just they're just hard to conceive of they're so small so so what i tell people is they're so small uh but there's so many of them that when you drop that frito <laughs> or that dorito <laughs> chip on the floor don't believe in the in the in the two second rule uh they're on it right away instantly there's so many of them. <laughs> right right exactly so we'll be talking um, uh, again and again over the course of the episode about uh, bacteria and, and using water and moisture as a tool in different ways. But, um, but categorically, you know, bacteria require moisture to create their mucilage they use to move and to grab passing nutrition and microbes. Um, does this suggest that a bacteria is more part of the water food web instead of the soil food web? Well, you know, I don't really think of it that way. All soil particles have a microscopic coating of moisture around them. Uh, and, and so it's a natural environment for bacteria to live in uh, and to move around in. Now, of course, remember, they don't move very far uh, or they don't have to move very far, um, but they're very, very small. Uh, and so, you know, the whole dynamics of how they move about and and, and what they do as they move about, it's just absolutely fascinating. But, but that water level in the soil, it's there. It's in your compost, it's in your vermicompost, uh, and of course, inside plants, there's plenty of water. Uh, but I consider it to be, you know, attached to the soil food web. Mm -hmm. Great. So if bacteria require water to be mobile, um, what is the mechanism they use to move around? In my mind, I imagine like something like ores. Right. And of course, if they're so small, and this is something very hard for us to conceive, they're so small that they that they can't use something like ores. They're 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 the dynamics of fluid at that at that size level is completely messed up. Uh, and so if they used ores, they would just sort of spin around. They wouldn't they wouldn't go anywhere. So they've developed this wonderful mechanism. Uh, they have these flagellums, these these uh, propellers, literally motors, uh, and they use about 10 percent of their of their proteins to, to, to produce these guys. And they spin around these little little motors. They have they, they rotate about a, a, a thousand times uh, a, a, a second. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just incredible how fast they move and uh, and and how much energy they take. And and depending on what kind of bacteria uh, it is. They have them on the ends. They could have them in the middle. They can have thousands of them, or they can have one of them. Uh, and and they've developed this ability to be able to use this propeller motion to move through this fluid, this sort of jello to them. Uh, you know, you can imagine that if you were in a swimming pool full of of liquid of solidifying jello, how difficult it would be to move. Uh, well, that's that's the problem they face, and that's why they've developed these unbelievable motors. And when you look at the pictures of them, they are motors. <laughs> you have to sort of pinch yourself. Whew, unbelievable what we can see with microscopes these days. And they and they rotate six thousand RPMs, you know, rotations per minute. Holy crow! Uh, if you did that with your car car engine, it wouldn't last very long. <laughs> so they're they're pretty incredible. Um, and they and they develop these protons. 
you know, they use these protons, which they to, to, to move these things. Ah, it's just they're unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you mentioned all the variety of mobility mechanisms that the, the different varieties of bacteria have, and we've gotten an idea of how small they are. Can you give us an idea of, of um, how numerous the varieties are? I, mean, I can imagine there's so many on the planet that we're still finding new ones all the time, but do we have any sense of, of, of their numbers on, on the planet? Not, not really. <laughs> I mean, they're discovering new ones all the time. I just read an article today that they wandered into some cave in Hawaii and discovered a thousand different bacteria they'd wow. never seen before. So they're, 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 you know, it's it's pretty incredible. Now, I will say that I I, I read s- studies that indicate that in soil, there's kind of a kind of a set amount and kinds of bacterium in soil uh, that's pretty pretty much similar all around the world. Um, uh, you know, it's the the plant can pick from that what they need with the with the exudates. But uh, but bacteria, you know, they're they're just so plentiful and so many different kinds, and they have the ability to be able to transfer DNA as they're going about their daily lives to make subspecies, and and and, and you know, it's really easy for them to to change uh, by by transferring chromosomes, and you know, it's just. They're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It's almost like you're reading my notes because that is my next question. You know, I, uh, you know, I know there's not boys and girls uh, uh, in in bacteria. Um, so, so will you explain to us um, both how they reproduce and how they transfer their DNA? Because you know, with with them reproducing, doubling in number every 20 minutes, there's so much opportunity for the passing of DNA and evolution. They must. They must must evolve so fast. Yeah, they do. I mean, and there's two different ways they do it. I mean, what when they divide to multiply, there's a there's a, a quasi nucleus. That's not the right term. It, can, it contains uh, chromosomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, the plasmid, and it it, it divides itself. Uh, and sometimes some some of the chromosomes leak out of that plasma as it's as it's dividing and is floating around out there free and gets involved in another bacterium. Uh, and sometimes two bacteria will wha- back up next to each other, put out this little plank way, and transfer a couple of little DNAs. Wow. Uh, and then of course it must occur that occasionally one bacterium eats another bacterium. Uh, and and absorb some of that DNA into its plasmid and and becomes a, a slightly different kind of bacterium. So they're yeah they change all the time. That's interesting. There's not really like a uh, what do I want to say like a like a carrier right like in right. <clears throat> in mammals you'll get like uh, you know the the seminal fluid that is holding the packages which then have the DNA and we're talking about a level of biology that is that is so basic that they are they it's just the transfer of the <clears throat> of the DNA itself i caught i caught three different three different varieties that you mentioned um one when they when they one separates into two and there's a little bit of accidental leakage um mm-hmm. that's one the uh, the second one being where one eats another <clears throat> and then the third one where one pokes another and um right. and so uh, even the fact that there are multiple ways that it happens um tells me that there's there's, there's there's constantly so many uh, variables every time um, there's a new I don't know generation. 
Right, which is why they can live in so many different kinds of environments. Uh, it's also why we have bacterial resistance, and you know, after a while, uh, you know, they they outsmart us, and so 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 yeah, and they're just in, they're incredible, and and I think we we. We, we've talked before, we don't study them in school because they're too damn small for people to look at. Instead, we study dinosaurs, which are too, you know, too extinct really to be of any use. So I wish we were studying bacterium and doing more microbiology in school. And, and actually, uh, you know, at home preschool, uh, you know, with the plush toys and stuff, as we've talked about. I mean, you know, little kids know their bacterium names. No, but they do know a dinosaur name. Well, the bacterium's still here. The bacteria, you know, I don't get it, but that's just me. <laughs> so, um, so how do these bacteria talk to each other? Because they very much appear to cooperate with each other, right? And they can put chemicals out into the into the uh, uh, soil uh, when those chemicals reach the right concentration. Uh, they can cause the entire group of bacteria to act in, you know, in particular ways. So there's, there's this sensing they have uh, that they're able to do. Uh, now, they also can obviously talk individually to each other, but, but it's the quorum sensing that, that, that people know bacterium for. Uh, so an individual bacteria might be swimming around having a nice happy day, uh, and then all of a sudden it starts to pick up this, this you know, for lack of a better word, sort of a pheromone, uh, as do all the other bacterium that are around it, including the ones that, you know, that were their mother and father 20 minutes ago. Uh, and all of a sudden they act, they act the same way and they fly in the same direction or, the, you know, they, move, they, they attack the same thing, whatever, whatever, whatever it happens to be that's going on. They all do it at once because there's little sensing signals out there in the environment. I can imagine that's uh, quite an impressive moment when you're looking at, you know, it's probably really hard to look at one single bacterium, so you're probably seeing like a, like a small group. And oh then, no, but it, but but it isn't difficult to see one anymore. It was when we you and I went to school, oh. uh, and it, and it probably is today in normal high schools because they don't have the machinery. But oh my goodness gracious! I mean, we can now see individual strains of DNA. Uh, and so, so yeah, we can we can see individual bacterium, and in fact, later on in the show, we'll we'll talk about about the the, the bacteria that go into plants, uh, and and the pictures that are in the book uh, are phenomenal. I mean, my God, who that that yeah. that moment of watching, um, you know, a bacterium, um, and then watch it, you know, start to be surrounded by other bacteria, and then that right. moment where. I mean, I'm assuming that there's this moment of shift where I, as the observer, I see them just milling around and then suddenly I can tell they've started yeah. to coordinate. It's, it's almost like, you know, not to anthropomorphize too much, but it's almost like, like a moment of them gaining intelligence because of the quorum sensing. Exactly. Exactly. You know, or, or I, because you know me, I mean, in the back of teaming with nutrients, I sort of, I sort of laid out my philosophy that we're just, you know, we're, it's the dandelion theory of life that we're just, you know, we're Horton, here's the who, we're the little people, and there's a bigger people, and, you know, there's another bigger dandelion. Da, 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 da. Uh, I mean, you know, these bacteria, we're just bacteria, perhaps, you know, and, and we quorum sense, you know, I'm going to vote for so-and-so, you know, and all the group gets together and they vote for so-and-so, <laughs> you know, it's like, a, it's like quorum sensing. 
well, that idea that we're all uh, bacteria, you know, that's 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 barely a metaphor, right? Because it's there's actually truism to it. I mean, right. so much of our body is bacterias and microbes and these life forms that are actually following their own, I guess, intent or plan, if you will, um, and and yet. You know, I think of it as they make up my body, but actually my body is only like about 30% unique to me. And the other 70% right. are all these living life forms that, that my body is somehow coordinating. That's trippy. Yeah. And what gets even more trippy is that some of the things that, ha- you know, we always talk about the, the, the soil food web ap- operating like the stomach, you know, the soil's big, big stomach digesting stuff and uh oh my god what happens in the stomach and what happens in rhizophagy which we're going to talk about uh it's unbelievable how similar they are so so yeah these bacteria control us and when you have a bad bacteria you get sick uh and and you've got some good bacteria that probably take out the bad bacteria it's just it's phenomenal uh, how how they operate uh, it doesn't matter whether they're inside you or inside a a plant uh, they are they are controlling lots of things we have no idea they're doing. So so as we are you know we're kind of setting up this these generalizations about bacteria. So everybody's kind of approaching the second set from the same context. So we know how mm-hmm. they reproduce and transfer their DNA. We've got a kind of an idea how they talk with each other, um, how to like they essentially eat or acquire nutrients and create energies for themselves because they you know they don't have mouths. So so what's their deal? Do they do they absorb it or photosynthesize? Well, they can do both. Or all uh, of them, I mean, yeah. there are some. Yeah, there are some photosynthetic uh, bacteria, some aren't. Uh, there are some that go through endosymbiosis. You know, they take, they open up and actually invaginate around what they're eating, and and others absorb it like a plant absorbs through through channels and stuff in their through their cell wall, and then in through the membrane, and then into the cytoplasm of the of the bacteria. That's a, that's invaginate it's got to be totally cool word of the day i'm gonna have to look that up yeah. when we're done here so well it's making you you know you open up and you and you you're like kind of encompassing it, it. Close. Yeah. Right, right right yeah right. yeah um all right so there's there's lots of different ways that they get the nutrients and because there's so much different so many different variety of bacteria um you know pretty much any way that you can think about it probably happens in some bacteria so so there's so much variety that that we're not going to not lock that down but so so bacteria are so small um, that they do influence the macro world, but no, let me, let me just say that differently. Bacteria are really small, but they do influence the macro world. Do we have any idea of what their numbers must exist? Like how many of them need to get together for them to influence levels of magnitude in nature that we notice it? Sure. Well, I think there's probably two answers to that on both extremes. Uh, snowflake, one bacterium can cause a snowflake. <laughs> mm. uh, so, so very small. Um, uh, and yet, on the other hand, then we, we can take, totally uh, notice know, it. Though we can still try to tr- catch it on our tongue, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you take you take uh, you know some serious diseases which spread out throughout you know cause pandemics. Uh, not not the one we're going through now, but I mean, so so they can influence as individuals and as groups. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in your first section where I'm learning more about bacteria, 
you know, some forms of bacteria have no cell walls. And I don't understand right. how that could be because in, you know, in my only, you know, high school biology, um, everything has cells walls. That's how everything stays inside and like holds it together in nature. How can some bacteria not have cell walls? Well, it's, it's, uh, the, these are called L forms. Um, uh, and oddly enough, the, the term comes from the name of the school where they were identified, some London school, so they used L, L forms. And these are bacteria that don't have uh, <clears throat> cell walls. And uh, in our story, we'll talk about one way that they get that way, but the, there's still a membrane. So what you've got when you look at the bacteria is you have a cell wall, same thing with a plant, then you've got a little space, and then you've got a, a membrane. And, and uh, so things have to go through the cell wall, and then they have to go into through the membrane to get into the, 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 the goods, the soup, the cytoplasm of the, of the bacteria. And same thing with the plant. Um, and so you've, you've, you've got the ability for uh, the, the insides of the bacteria to stay connected just by that membrane, mm. in, in, you know, unless they're really getting roughed up. I see. It can rupture, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So they. So so in, in my picturing that they have no cell walls. It's not that they don't have a dividing wall. It's actually a membrane. It's just not something as serious as a cell wall. So so those bacteria would probably be more fragile, but they yes. still have enough membrane to like hold their lives together. Right, and they but they might leak a little bit. Um, you know what I the, the example you might want to think about is somebody mails you a box with a blown up balloon in it. <laughs> you open it up, you take the balloon out. Uh, the cell wall was the box, and now you've got that balloon. Well, if you're not careful, it's going to pop. In the box, it wouldn't have popped. That's a great example. Um, so uh, I got to tell you, Jeff, uh, it's so um, and so encouraging <laughs> to have you back on as a guest because, you know, this is th there's we have a lot of information to go through today, and um, uh, you are such a, 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 a snappy and excited and get the words out and get to your point, guest. Like this is the only way we were going to do this. Like I like we're we're moving through at a, such a pleasant pace that like I can almost feel like information falling out of people's ears. And and um, and we're actually going to be able to get through of it everything in like a you know a realistic time instead of like a four or five hour show. So it's it's nice to be around your enthusiasm. So, well, I, I appreciate that. So let's let's move on a little bit. Um, so mm -hmm. we we've hit a <clears throat> a lot about like generalized bacteria, but I want to start uh, uh, grounding some of this uh, in cannabis. <clears throat> so. Um, and we're going to start by talking a little bit about bacteria and seeds. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when we go to the second set, we're going to go in depth about the rhizophagy um, cycle, mm -hmm. and that's going to be our, our biggest set today. Um, sure. but, but I want to ground our conversation in cannabis, since that's the, mm -hmm. the nature of the show. Um, so cannabis plants have a relationship with bacteria at, at every step of the life. And, and I was really surprised to learn that there's, there's even bacteria in the seed that, um, you know, is, is, is put into the seed as it's growing. And then it's, it's sitting there in wait as it's waiting in our refrigerator. And then when it's given the right conditions, it is, it's, you know, told, all right, time to do your job. So will you walk us through the relationship sure. between bacteria and cannabis seeds? Sure. This is a good time to introduce the concept of endophytes. Uh, endophytes are, are 
uh, uh, microorganisms that live inside a plant for at least part of their life. Um, and and sometimes contribute to the plant, sometimes they harden the plant, but they live part of their life inside the plant. Now, there are all manner of bacteria, as we'll talk later on, that get into a plant, uh, and they can get into a plant through little cracks in the root, and they can get into the plant uh, airborne, get blown onto the onto the plant, and and uh, or maybe get blown onto a flower. But what happens is when a flower is formed and the seeds are being formed, if you sort of sort of imagine it, it's like an open, the palm of your hand is the flower and you've got bacteria in the palm, your hand closes up and those bacteria end up inside the seed, your fist. Does that make sense? It does. So those bacteria are in there. Those are endophytic bacteria. And all seeds have bacteria in them, endophytes. And usually, I don't know, maybe 100 million seeds, 100 million bacteria in, in a seed. That might be a high end, uh, many different kinds, depending on what kind of seed it is. And these uh, are in the, in the seed when the seed germinates they are released or they come out of their dormancy and they either go into the plant or they go most of them into the soil so these become your rhizobacterium they add to the bacteria that are already in the soil but these are specific bacteria carried by that seed and then deposited in the soil for what purpose obviously the seed uh, the plant that grows from that seed uses those bacteria and those bacteria uh to to do something beneficial for that plant it, it's like the seed's bringing carrying. its own bagged lunch exactly right exactly right and it turns out with cannabis that it's bringing specific kinds. Now let's just for a second get away from cannabis. One of the one of the studies done uh, that I read was of corn. You know, corn has changed over the 400 years that you know in the New World we've we've been breeding it, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out that the original corn, if you plant it today, it has the same bacteria in it <laughs> that it had back 400 years ago. Holy crow! Wow. Uh, no, it's just amazing. And so it turns out that cannabis carry their own specific desired bacteria. So that's the first lesson. Uh, and, and when we're dealing with seeds, we want to be very, very careful. So obviously, the one thing you do not want to do with your cannabis seeds anymore is sterilize them, which many people do. Uh, I don't think they're fully capable of completely sterilizing them, but many people use hydrogen peroxide, et cetera, to sterilize the seed. You don't want to do that. You want every single bacteria that seed has uh, living and doing something in that soil. Well, it's become uh, so, incredibly common for people to use a 70-30 mix of water and H2O2 with the idea that it is right. adding more you know, oxygen to the situation. Are you suggesting that the, the H2O2 in that blend is wiping bacteria from the seed? 
Yeah, I think it might be. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we've got to do a lot more research, but but it certainly makes sense to me that it is, and that when the seed germinates, so there's still some of the H2O2 uh, that kills some of the bacterium, so or impacts the bacterium one way or the other. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think we've got to be very, very careful about about that. By the same token, a lot of people start their seeds in towels, paper towels. You know, you put the seed in, you wet the paper towel, you fold it, uh, and then the seed grows, and then you take it carefully with a tweezer, and you put it back, you put it in the soil. Wait a minute. Doesn't it make sense that that paper towel contains a lot of bacterium that you may want? Bury the paper towel, too. <laughs> that makes a practical lot of sense. advice. Practical <laughs> advice. And, and so many people, you know, if you leave your if you leave your seed in the paper towel an extra day, um, a lot of the time the the your most important new root hairs will have bonded with the paper towel. And so, right. you know, I've been in this heck. I was in that situation this spring where where I pull I pulled it. You know, it had attached, and I gave it a little tug, and I separated. You know, what's going to become the tap root from the paper towel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you right. know, I, it didn't feel good when I did it. I'm like, ooh, I, I ripped root hairs. But now, now after reading your book, um, I understand profoundly how important <sighs> all those early root hairs are. And uh, I want to be far more careful now. And, and I'm more likely just to, you know, cut that area of the paper towel out and, and plant it with the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Which will work just fine. Uh, yeah. So it's, the seed carries these wonderful things, and 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 what we've discovered with cannabis in particular is that the bacteria in the soil around a cannabis plant is generally one cannabis plant and another cannabis plant is pretty much the same. What happens is the plant, and we're going to talk about this obviously in the next segment, rhizophagy, what, the plant takes up some of these bacterium, and depending on the, the, the type of cannabis you're growing, it takes up specific endophytes. So your Durban poison takes up one set of bacterium endophytes, and your, you know, your lemon OG uh, takes up another kind. Now, we've always talked in cannabis about tawar. Uh, <laughs> um, hmm, now maybe we're getting into a slightly different, maybe it's not called tawar anymore, but the bacterium impacts the cannabis in ways, you know, we are now just getting our eyes opened on. I mean, there's no question that that your cannabis is influenced by the type of endophytes that it has inside it. Um. You're, in your book, you also lay out that um, different seeds, even of the same variety and from the same seed-making experience, will have uh, different bacteria in the different seeds. And so, even if you are, you know, intending that your seeds be, you know, identical, I'll use that term loosely, um, mm -hmm. that, that e even if you had the genetics all exactly the same between two seeds and they were actually identical, the fact that they are encapsulating uh, different blends of bacteria means that uh, that bacteria is going to influence how the plant grows in the environment. And I know this is incorrect usage of the vocabulary, but 
it reminds me a lot of how the the scene thinks of uh, phenos, right? Like, oh, you know, you got right. the same seed, but you got different phenos of that seed, right? And so, right. And so it seems to me that 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 is an interesting thing for cannabis cultivators to be aware of um, when we're trying to judge the quality of seeds. Sometimes the seed can be produced perfectly f- appropriately. And part of it being appropriately made is that different seeds in the same run are actually going to have different bacteria and therefore are going to start the plant off on a different path, on a different footing. Right, right. Yeah, you can't help, you can't help but have that happen. Um, but by the same token, uh, you know, your, your strain should contain the same endophytes, uh, you know, time and time and time again, which is, whew, uh, very interesting, and, and and we know we know that when you use when you again we're we're sort of overlapping when you use nitrogen fertilizers, you reduce the number of bacteria in the rhizosphere that go into the plant that influence the plant's terpene content and flavonoids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and when you increase the amount of bacteria that you put in the plant versus nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, you end up with higher terpenes, flavonoids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so all of this bacteria talk uh, uh, validates, validates, validates <laughs> the organic soil food web system of growing. Um, you know, and then I guess we can go one step further. It also validates not changing your soil all the time. If you're growing cannabis. Uh, in, in the soil, it's putting it's you know it's putting exudates out that are concentrating in the, uh, the right kinds of bacteria. No sense throwing that stuff out. Plant in it again, uh, so you can take advantage of what's already happened in it before. So, dear listener, if you're listening and you're like, oh my gosh, Shango, ask more follow-up questions on this. We will get to that in the third set, specifically how the bacteria um, can be leveraged in your um, in your cultivation environment. But for now, we're going to move on. So, um, you know, <clears throat> uh, reading your description of seed germination, uh, the root cap that, uh, that protects the radical, the mucilage mm-hmm. produced by the seed to lubricate the area of soil around the seed, and how that mucilage is used to bind microbes to the root while attracting phosphorus, zinc, iron, magnesium. It makes me realize that as cultivators, we should really be careful and and resist moving the seed once we've placed it in the soil. You know, yes, they're hardy and like seeds pop, you know, and 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 survive in crazy situations, but there's so much subtle biology going on as soon as the, um, as soon as you're triggering the germination that I can now see how important it is to not disturb the seeds. And I think that like with this understanding, I'm going to increase my germination rates because I have a, I have a tendency to, to, to like move seeds and, and move the soil around it to like, you know, you know, get, help it get more sun exposure or, or, or like, <laughs> right. Oh, I watered it. And like, you know, it, it got recovered. And I really think I, I, now I understand that it's important to just like, don't be touching the seed after you've started the process. Right, right. Yeah, it's, you know, let the plant, I've always said the plant's in control. Uh, you know, that's what I learned from Dr. Elaine. And, and there's no reason why, why a cannabis plant shouldn't be in control as well. 
All right. All right. So um, let's uh, let's go ahead and take our first commercial break. Uh, we are probably mostly here for the rise of phagy cycle. And so we're going to leave most of the time for that next. So we're going to take our short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. You know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard them on Shaping Fire. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. A fully functioning greenhouse grows extraordinary cannabis flowers that have exceptional bag appeal, great terpene profiles, and exceptional yield. But as we have discussed many times on Shaping Fire, a greenhouse is only as good as the environment you create for the plants inside. Biotherm has been on the forefront of developing and installing highly efficient greenhouse solutions since 1980. Whether new construction, major upgrades, or a retrofit, Biotherm's cultivation climate solutions are tailored to each grower's specifications. They even have root zone heating mats that attach to a home hot water heater for growing areas 500 square feet or smaller. The atmosphere of the growing environment directly affects the health and productivity of your crop. Biotherm offers heating, cooling, dehumidification, and CO2 enrichment to optimize the air your plants breathe and optimize plant growth by enhancing the elements within the cultivation space. Biotherm's dissolved oxygen irrigation solutions will improve the vitality of your water and the efficiency of your hydro delivery system. When you implement Biotherm's systemic innovation, you'll experience increased yields, improved plant vigor, and increased resistance to disease and pests. 
Biotherm offers free phone and email support for everything they sell and will help you troubleshoot and diagnose issues to get your equipment back online. The explosion of greenhouse cultivation has crowded the field with novice consultants selling unproven gadgets. When you choose Biotherm to regulate your greenhouse environment, you know you're relying on their over 40 years of experience designing, installing, and supporting mission-critical greenhouse technology. Your plants deserve nothing less than Biotherm. Visit BiothermSolutions.com today to learn more and request a quote. Once you've discovered the benefits of using cannabis, it's a very small step to start making your own edibles, gummies, lotions, tinctures, and concentrated oils at home. Magical Butter has been helping cannabis consumers become self-sufficient for over a decade. With the easy-to-use Magical Butter Countertop Botanical Extractor, you can create high-quality cannabis products to your exact specifications at a fraction of the cost of store-bought edibles. I talk a lot on this show about the importance of home-growing so you don't have to rely on others to feel healthy. Well, the Magical Butter Machine can empower your personal health by putting you in control of how you use cannabis in your daily life. I've been making my own butters and oils on the stove for years, and I much prefer the ease of using the Magical Butter Machine. I just set it and walk away. With the simple touch of a button, the Magical Butter Machine grinds, heats, stirs, and steeps your herbal extract all at the correct time interval and temperature for the perfect infusion every time. As a result, you achieve your desired infusion easily, safely, and consistently. Check out the Magical Butter Instagram to see the machine in action. And don't feel like you have to go it alone. There is a huge community on Facebook called Magical Butter Users United, sharing recipes and best practices so you can learn at your own pace from others who are already doing it successfully. Now is the time to get your own Magical Butter machine and save money while enjoying cannabis. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, to get 10% off. Visit MagicalButter.com today. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. So uh, before the break, we were talking, you know, more generally about uh, bacteria um, as an organism, as uh, something that we interact with every day in our lives, but almost never think about, and unless we get sick. And then, um, and then we started uh, bringing that home to the cannabis plant itself, um, kind of like at the beginning of this cycle that we're going to be talking about this entire set the rhyo the rhizophagy cycle and and i see this cycle as starting with the seed as far as like the plant's uh living cycle goes it starts with the seed because when we germinate the seed it it brings along with it the essential bacteria that it's going to need to grow which is like totally cool and amazing in and of itself but also you know really useful to know as a grower so um you know I kind of want to back into this topic, Jeff, because, you know, usually mm-hmm. in an interview, I'd, I'd ask successive small questions to paint a bigger picture, slowly making the picture bigger. But we're going to ta- discuss rhizophagy cycle. And I really think that before we talk about the details of, you know, 
you know, the, the, the roots and the uptake and all this stuff in specific, we really should grok what the rhizophagy cycle is itself in total um, before we go into the details. So um, I, I want to do something for the first time. I'd like to read uh, a paragraph from your book, just a couple of sentences, and, and then I'll hand the mic to you to meticulously walk us through it in more detail, all right? But but th- this, mm-hmm. this, like whatever it is, four sentences in your book, right, just nailed it so well for me after I read all the details that um, I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. So here, here it is, friends. Under the new model of the soil food web, plants still farm the soil, but they maintain flocks of bacteria too. These are rounded up and corralled just inside the root meristem cell walls. There, the bacterial walls are shorn off and absorbed by the plant as nutrients. In response, the bacteria produce nitric oxide to protect themselves. This is a further boon, supplying the plant with nitrogen. Then the plant causes the bacteria to multiply. Finally, the plant grows a root hair and puts the flock of bacteria back out to pasture to get ready for the next season's shearing. So this example, right, uh, end of quote. Um, so this example that you give of bacteria being like sheep really simplifies it to the point that I understand that that the bacteria are going to enter the plant through their roots and then be put back out to pasture through the roots as well. And and this is wonderfully oversimplified, but <clears throat> I think that having that out in everybody's ears first will will help them listen and make more sense about where you're about to go. So, um, uh, I am sure that you have, uh, you've got a way to explain this as a, like a beautiful package. So, so at, the, <laughs> at this point, I'm going to hand you the mic. I know this is going to be a pretty long answer to the question, <laughs> but why don't you just walk us through the rhizophagy cycle, um, uh, in, in, in its, in its main framework. And then, and then when you kind of get to the end of it, we'll move on to the, the more specific questions. Sure. Okay. Well, let's start with, uh, our model of the soil food web. The plant takes its photosynthetic energy and it uses a, quite a bit of it, 50% or so to produce exudates that drip out into the soil that attract bacteria, fungi, the bacteria and fungi, as we know, attract protozoa and nematodes who eat the bacteria and fungi, poop out the excess, and all of that excess is in plant-usable form, and it then diffuses into the plant. I call that the diffusion model of the soil food web. It's the wonderful research and work that's done by Dr. Elaine uh, Ingham and others that's, that's you know given us the concept of the soil food web. Well, along comes Dr. James White and this terrific woman in Australia who made the discovery of rhizophagy, and they discovered that some of these bacteria that are congregating right there in the rhizosphere, they're living in there right at the root tip there, right, right as you say, in that little sloughed-off area where the sloughed-off cells are coming out of the root tip as it grows, and and all of a sudden, some of them smell this butyric acid, buttery smell, and they back up against the, the, the cell wall, I mean the root wall, right there in the meristem of the root. These brand new cells that are being formed, they have very thin cell walls. They, they aren't differentiated in any way. And there are a, a colony of bacteria sitting right there against the, the, the cell wall of these root cells. And some of them produce 
ethylene, not some of them, they all produce ethylene, which they make using one of the exudates, arginine. So the plant produces this arginine, it, it allows these bacteria to produce ethylene, and this ethylene enables them to push through that thin cell wall in the meristem and enter into the space between the cell wall, the plant cell wall of the, in the root, and the actual membrane uh, that we talk about, uh, you know, that, that, that takes, that has the little channels that nutrients go through, et cetera. So there's a little space between that membrane and the cell wall called a periplasmic space. And in go these bacterium and they become bacteria inside. And as they go in, they have this ethylene, which causes the wall to open up. The ethylene triggers the plant to try to defend itself. And the plant does that by spraying something called NADPH. I won't give you the scientific word for it, but it sprays superoxide, oxygen, superoxide onto the bacteria as they enter. And that superoxide strips off the cell wall of the bacteria. And that is absorbed by the plant as nutrients. Now, it strips them off and the bacteria goes, wait a second, I gotta protect myself a little bit more. And so it, it, it produces nitric acid and both the nitric acid and the ethylene produced create chemical reactions that do two things. One, it reduces the power of the superoxide, turns it into hydrogen peroxide, uh, which is, uh, you know, so it's been antioxidated, so to speak. And, and two, uh, it, 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 it causes the, uh, uh, the, the, the plant to provide a, a little bit more carbon to the bacteria. So you get this bacteria that's literally trapped inside that little periplasmic space. It's getting carbon from the plant, but it's producing ethylene and nitric acid, and that nitric acid turns to nitrate, and it is also absorbed by the plant. So the plant has now gotten the cell wall and nitric uh, nitrate out of the bacteria that's in this periplasmic space. Now inside this space, there's a current. So you have a, a circular current inside the cytoplasm, inside the membrane, and inside this periplasmic space, you also have a circular current. And these bacterium, now bacteria, without cell walls are moved in a circle in this periplasmic space. And as they move, the agitation uh, and the fact that they've been in there for more than 20 minutes causes them to reproduce. So they're L forms, they don't have cell walls, and they reproduce and they form quads and septuplets of bacterium, walled bacterium that are circulated around the cell and they are producing ethylene the whole time they're doing it. This ethylene is causing the plant, again, to provide a little teeny bit of carbon, but it also causes the plant cell to grow, to elongate. And after a, a, a couple of days, literally, uh, these things are feeding the plant, producing that nitrogen, uh, and 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 uh, they're they're moving around and they're multiplying. They congregate. Their numbers get so large that they begin to congregate up against the cell wall. 
uh, they get caught in a little rough spot. And as they produce ethylene in, in that group, that ethylene causes a tube to form off of the root. You and I know that tube to be a root hair. Root hairs aren't separate cells that attach to the root. They're a tube that forms from the cell that is in the root. So you've got this tube that forms, and the bacterium, uh, now bacteria, uh, that are producing ethylene move into that new tube. And more and more accumulate, more ethylene is produced. There's that, that cycling that goes around, and all of a sudden, a little tidal wave of, of periplasmic stuff gel gets pushed into that little tube, that little root forming root here, and it pushes the bacterium out of the tip of that root hair into the soil, where they coincidentally grow back their cell wall, and then several days later, repeat the trip through a new meristem cell. Now, that little explosion through that root hair doesn't occur just once. There can be three, four, five different explosions as that root hair grows. Now, you and I have been taught that root hairs are there for absorbing nutrients, which they do. Uh, they increase the surface area, what, 30% or so of, of the, of the, of the uh, root, uh, but they're really there to be ejectile uh, uh, structures to put these naked bacterium, L-forms, back into the soil so that they can pick up more arginine, pick up more other exudates, put their cell walls back down, and go back in again and feed the plant. So they're they're trapped in there, providing nutrients, uh, getting nutrients, and then they're back in the soil, fixing themselves up, and they go back in again uh, where they're wool is sheared, and then they're put back out into the pasture so that they can regrow their wool and come back in again and be sheared again. Wow! It's, to it's totally mind-blowing. <laughs> it is mind-blowing. And so, and it makes you wonder, so are the bacteria in the rhizosphere, let's call them, let, are, the, are they there because of Dr. Elaine's concept, which is, of course, the truth, or are they there because of Dr. White's concept? Were they there first for endo, uh, you know, for the rhizophage, or were they there first for the diffusion model? We don't know. Uh, be, you know, it's sort of like a chicken and egg thing. Uh, but it's fascinating. Uh, uh, the same bacteria. Wow. It and could, why would it could a also be redundant? Wanna... It could be redundant systems because nature does that often. It's, that's exactly right. Uh, now, it makes sense that the bacteria would want to be inside the root because once they're inside their root, they have less competition. They have no predators. Uh, they're being fed some carbon by the plant internally, and nobody, nobody else is eating that carbon. Uh, it's, so there's reasons why, and they're, and they're multiplying like crazy. And what, what is life here for? It's to multiply and propagate. And that's what they're doing inside that root. So, so it's a, it's a, you know, the ph philosophical question about which came first is, is a fascinating one. Um, but what happens in there is just, absolutely unbelievable and the photographs folks that are in the book that show these individual bacteria and then show them as protoplasts or l forms and then show them as quads you know they're oh my gosh unbelievable and they only get better 
they only get better. Now I should say, because it's not necessarily in the book and I don't know whether you want to get into it right now, but from a cannabis growing perspective, a, uh, the question I wrote in the book at the time was, are trichomes simply root hair that are formed on the leaf in the philosphere? Uh, and a lot of research has been done in the two years since the book was written and went through the publishing process. And it now appears that that there's sort of a similar thing happening with these bacteria in, in trichomes. They cause in a sense part of the formation because they have ethylene but it but it but it appears that what's happening is there are bacteria inside these trichomes uh, uh that that are being bombarded by superoxide and and then are going through the antioxidant situation that they went through in rhizophagy uh and are you know, nullifying the superoxidant by producing nitrogen inside the trichome, but also producing all sorts of uh, metabolites, flavonoids, you know, cannabinoids, etc. So that there is a direct relationship between the rhizophagy and what 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 is being called endosymbiosis in the philosphere uh, and inside the trichome. So there's a there's definitely something going on here with these bacteria that we were not aware of uh, that we could guess at uh, that Dr. James White and some of his his students are now coming closer to getting the answers for. And I, I dare suspect that once cannabis is fully legalized so that we can study it in, this, in a truly scientific method, uh, we're going to find out an awful lot about how these bacteria uh, influences uh, the, the the trichomes, and I'm going to have to do a revised edition. <laughs> it's it really is amazing that you know we humans are so cocky, thinking we know so much, and and yet we we didn't even know that the rhizophagy cycle even existed until 2008. It's like there's so much yeah, more research yeah. we have to do about our planet, and 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 then hopefully we won't kill it first. So, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think it's actually it was 2010. I, I sent a copy of the book to the woman in Australia who made the discovery. Uh, and and uh, she since sort of moved on, apparently, because of funding, et cetera, et cetera. But she was she was stunned and thrilled that somebody's really glommed onto this because it's so important. Do you, re- do you, uh, recall, do you recall her name that, so we can name check her I, and know, give her I, give her the respect? Yeah, but I can't pronounce it, so I'm going to open the oh. book up and, and, and give it to you. But it's I just cannot pronounce it, and it's, it just makes me so angry. Uh, I'll have to find it. It's going to take me a minute here, but go ahead and ask right, me. Right, another, right another well, I'll, I'll, yeah, just, I'll just tell folks. Shanaret, here it is. It's it's Shanaret uh, Pungafago Lunheim. <laughs> wow, that is, that is a mouthful, and you know it's it, it's it's hard to like walk that line, right? We want to give respect to the scientists, but also if their names are in languages we're un- unfamiliar with, we also don't want to do the disrespect of like butchering the name. So I, I'm I'm sorry I put right. you in that position. I get where you were coming. Oh from. no 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 no! But but it gave me an opportunity. It gives me an opportunity to once again point out this is not me, folks. I did not make these discoveries. Dr. Elaine Ingham, you know, and and Dr. James White, they are the gurus, not me. Uh, all I did was parrot what they've what they've taught me. So so uh, yeah, it's I'm glad you did that. 
Right on. Okay. So, um, so that, thank you for going through the, the entire cycle so that as we go through these next few questions, you know, people already have the big picture and now we're, now we're just going to kind of poke at it. So, okay. you know, one of my favorite parts of this cycle are exudates, something that I have found fascinating ever since I started getting involved with learning about the, the soil food web. And, you know, generally cannabis cultivators understand that the exudates are selective nutrition that the plant uses to feed the microbes and other allies that come out of the roots and the and the hairs into the rhizosphere during the dark cycle. During the light cycle, the plant photosynthesizes and the rhizosphere feeds the plant. But then during the dark cycle, the plant like rewards the rhizosphere with exudates. But few folks, including me, have a real understanding what these exudates specifically contain and how the selectiveness part of the plant functions you've already said that that the that the um, that the the plant uses the exudates to attract particular members of the rhizosphere including bacteria and so will you kind of like break that out for us because this this is an incredible mechanism well, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the plant uses that photosynthetic energy to make everything that's inside the plant. Uh, and it's always a surprise to people that, to, to realize that they would waste, so to speak, by, by exudating uh, uh, these things. And, and so they can, they can adjust that exudate to attract what they need. If they need more bacteria, uh, it's one thing. If they need uh, more protozoa, it's, it, it, it's another thing. But in this particular instance, there's one part of the exudate, it's the, this arginine that we talked about, um, that that uh, really is so important to the cycle. Uh, and if the plant wasn't producing it, the cycle would occur. So, so uh, it just points out how how important a, a individual exudates can be. Now we know that some of these exudates uh, attr attract uh, 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 fungi. Uh, some of them attract yeast, which is a fungi. Uh, some of them act as citophores. You know, they go out and they lock up various things. So, for example, uh, you know, there are things that you don't want inside a plant, and the plant has the capability of putting out an exudate that can, you know, can glom around those particular metals, for example, uh, and prevent them from going inside the plant. Uh, and bacteria have the capability of doing that as well, uh, and they're sort of trading around with this stuff. So these exudates are incredibly important, uh, and they have everything in the world to do with not only the attraction of these microbes, but the beginning of soil structure. Because once you attract these microbes, uh, they create the soil structure. The bacteria with its slime, uh, the the fungi by tying tying together individual particles of soil. Uh, you know, so so it's just an unbelievably crucial thing and we exudate as we've talked before our sweat is exudate it attracts bacteria and fungi to our skin and if dial soap worked the way that it's supposed to work we'd be dead in 24 hours because that stuff acts as a protective to us so it's it's key stuff um 
I want to focus in on uh, one aspect of um, nitrogen that you mentioned during the cycle. You made this very interesting comparison between uh, the traditional uh, soil food web Elaine Ingham diffusion idea where our plant is growing and uh, it absorbs nitrogen through the roots to feed itself. And then the other example on this bacteria-focused um rhizophagy cycle where the cell is brought into the plant via the hairs it is then um stripped of its cell membrane no 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 not 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 via the hairs they they come in through the meristem in the root tip ah thank you and, yeah so so then they find they find their way in they're stripped of their uh, cell walls and then right. um uh, they are they start to produce nitrates as a defense because they're all like my cell wall's gone I'm naked like quick let's produce this defending nitrate which which well, is yes a, a nitric nitric acid nitric acid which tur which then turns into nitrate as a result of some of the the superoxide uh, that the plant is spraying on, uh, on them excellent thank you so so here, yeah. here here's the question the question is um. These are both different ways that the plant gets nitrogen. Do you right. do you think that one is preferable to get, uh, than another, or do we find that that both are uh, important because they're going to be doing different things in the plant, and perhaps it's just nature's redundancy to make sure things stay alive? Well, I think both are important, and uh, obviously there's going to be a lot more research to determine. But so far, uh, there have been studies that show about. 30, maybe 40% of the nitrogen in a plant can come from rhizophage. Mm. So, so the, obviously that's a pretty sign <laughs> significant uh, uh, number. But, but something else happens. When that NAPDH sprays this superoxide onto the bacteria, it has to make sure that it's not killing its own cell wall at the same time. Mm. And so what happens is the plant cell becomes a little bit more resistant, a little bit better able to handle stress uh, as a result of that, uh, that superoxide, ROS, being sprayed. And it strengthens the plant. And so the plant is, is better able to handle various stresses as a result of having gone through this process. We haven't even talked about the fact that that uh, a lot of these bacteria, these endophytic bacteria that enter the root and then move move, move into the plant, produce these phytohormones uh, like gibberellic acid, and, you know, that 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 cause uh, ethylene that cause the plant uh, to to have different reactions to different things, and so they help the plant as well. It's just incredible what these bacteria do. Uh, this but, might... it but it starts it starts with stimulating the cell of the plant to be more resistant and therefore healthier. This is probably a good place to plug the book again because, like, by, by listening to this interview today, you are not replacing the book. I mean, there are there are four chapters that I don't even pull questions from. So, um, you know, if if you are if you are hearing our conversation today and you're getting fired up by some of the new ideas that you're having, uh, for goodness sakes, uh, go get the book because because you know as 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 much as I try to capture everything in in this interview, we're never going to do in an hour and a half what's in this entire book. So, um, all right. So let's talk about, let's see, where was I? 
Oh yeah. So, so, you know, one of the insights that I found, especially stirring was your statement that through using methods through, you know, cultivators using methods like natural farming and Korean natural farming techniques specifically that, that we can use valuable photosynthetic energy to biosynthesize exudates feeding the plant as much as I am helping the plant I'm sorry, to attract bacteria and fungi to the root zone. Sorry, I skipped a, skipped a line in my reading. So the so point I'm trying to make is that you're suggesting that that the natural farming and KNF that we do is really less about feeding the plant directly, but it's really about helping the plant bait the hook to lure and attract the food it needs, which brings us back to the idea again that I'm not actually the one who's feeding the plant. I am the one that's feeding the soil, and and my partner in this is the plant, and, and through KNF and natural farming we're actually helping the plant bait the attractants that's huge right. yeah you're filling up the refrigerator uh you know and the plant doing that yeah yeah and 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 i think i try to make the point in the book that we can call it knf we can call it regenerative farming we can call it whatever it's all soil food web uh and that's where it comes from uh it's 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 making sure that the soil food web can operate to its fullest extent with the maximum amount of efficiency uh, so that everybody's happy including you the individual that's taking care of the plants that's so, regenerative that is it, it 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 closes all the cycles and we are fully interacting with our crops and you know with the right. earth so right. these these root hairs, these tubes at the end of the yeah. roots, where we are, um, you know, kind of uh, 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 flushing the the bacteria back out for for it to regenerate itself, and then to come back so that we can shear it and 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 use it to perf- uh, produce nitrates again. That that cycle is clearly important, and and as a cultivator. I want to know what I can do to encourage root hair growth. Hmm. Well, um, obviously, you want to make sure that you're not disturbing any of the bacteria uh, in your system um, because that's what's causing the roots hairs to grow. Um, we want to be able to ultimately add in the right kinds of bacteria. Uh, do we know, for example, with cannabis, which ones they are? Mm, you know, we have some ideas, but are you and I able to identify them? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have to figure out a system to be able to do that. And I think that's all coming. I, I see a time, you know, five years from now or 10 years from now, where we're going to be able to to, to uh, take a soil sample uh, and, and be able to analyze it with our cell phone. And it'll mm-hmm. tell us what's in it. Uh, right now, you can you can determine what kind of bacteria DNA you've got by sending in samples and you know having an expensive system done. Uh, but but we're going to end up with a you know like a 23andMe system, I think. <laughs> uh, you know where we can find out exactly what's going on, and it's so exciting that we're getting there. Now we know that there's a need for it, so we'll uh, we're, certainly the, there will be a development that gets it. The databases are already there. We've got databases of all the known bacteria. Uh, and so we ought to be able to hook up what we've what we've got. So it's coming. Um, uh, but but there are certain certain things that we do know. So, for example, we know that the bacterial mix in vermicompost is different than the bacterial mix in thermal compost. 
And it, it, it may turn out that using thermal compost is better than using uh, vermicompost because it has the right mix of bacteria in it to be able to feed the kind of plant that we want. One of the things we haven't talked about is that these plants are, are pretty specific. Why would a plant allow a bacteria to get into its root cells? Uh, well, it, it, you know, it does so if it's the right bacteria and it knows it's not going to harm it. Um, and so, so it's, the plants are pretty selective about which bacteria they let in and which ones they won't. And it turns out that some bacteria go into a, a particular kind of grass. I don't mean cannabis, but a particular kind sure. of grass and the grass thrives. That same bacteria, uh, bacteria goes into a different kind of grass and that grass dies. So it's very specific, and this, the evolution uh, has determined which bacteria can go into which plants, and we need to nail that down, and, and we will. It's all coming, coming along. Just in the time that this book has been going through the publishing process, as noted, our whole concept of what goes on inside trichomes has changed. Uh, Dr. James White and his students have discovered some of these bacteria inside cells inside nucleus huh what are they doing there they're on the nuclear pore uh are they providing something for the nuclear pore uh are they taking sugars from the new what's going on there so there's lots of neat stuff that's going to be investigated we're going to get better and better and better at this stuff Excellent. So I want to take a side quest with you at this point. Um, you sure. know, we've already recommended at the top of the show that people check out Teeming with Fungi, uh, one of your earlier books, if they have not. Um, it is, mm -hmm. you know, it's a cannabis cultivation classic, but, you know, it's actually mm -hmm. enjoyed by gardeners of every kind of plant. Um, so, so I recommend people read that, but I would like you to kind of like tie us to that book. I would like you to make the linkage between the rhizophagy cycle and the mycelium network, because mostly we've really been talking about like just the bacteria at this time, but but I know that there are handoffs back and forth between the bacteria, the mycelium network, and and that's fleshed out also in Team with Fungi, I believe. But I'd like to I'd like to have you kind of tie that sure. in at this point. Right. Well, none of these microbes operate alone. Uh, the soil food web is a web, not a soil food microbe, uh, and so everything is operating together. And uh, what we what we've discovered is that uh, the first of all the uh, the uh, mycorrhizal fungi uh, go into the plant. They don't they don't invade the cell usually, but they they they're in between the cell, and then an, uh, an invagination occurs. But they're in between. The cells and they're and they're providing nutrients uh, uh, to the plant in return from for those exudates in sort of a similar way that's happening to the bacterium. Although the bacteria isn't connected to the soil anymore, it's providing nutrients that that may have come from the soil but the, the, then contained inside their their body. But they operate in conjunction. So, for example, along the mycorrhizal uh, mycelium, you will find uh, plant growth promoting bacteria that sometimes act as in, you know, as rhizophagy bacteria, uh, but sometimes they just, they just help out, uh, uh, you know, getting phosphorus, for example, and giving it to the, uh, to the fungi so that the fungi can give it to the plant and they work together. Um, by the same token, there are some fungi that are, 
that are not healthy for the plant. And some of these bacteria can jump out of the root uh, and and kill the, the, the fungi and jump back into the root again. Wow. So, so there's this intricate relationship that goes on. But the, the plant growth promoting bacteria, uh, which are in some products that we can already buy. I'm trying to, you know, unfortunately, the damn, I can see uh, mammoth. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, th- th- those kinds of products, they operate using the bacteria and the fungi, I think. Uh, and, and, and so they operate together and they work together. So, you know, um, we've talked before about how overfeeding a plant can make your plant's roots and mycelium network lazy. And, and right. from thinking about this bacterial cycle, this rhizophagy cycle and all of the, elegant work that is being done and how very specific that the nutrients are that the plant is farming and gathering for itself. Um, I'm, I'm convinced even more of, of not overfeeding our pot because if we're just making all of these kind of like loosey goosey nutrients that we tend to add that are not as specific as the plant is specific that you know having all of all of this nutrition floating around is 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 going to be there's a likelihood that i'm either going to um interrupt or screw up the rhizophagy cycle um um or that I'm going to add enough food that suddenly the mycelium network is not reaching out to, to the distant parts of the, of the container or of the soil in order to get specific um, micronutrients or, or that I can, uh, you know, I might even injure the cycle. It seems to me that we need to be exceptionally careful to only feed the plants um, as much food as they're going to need or, or, or say amend as much as we need and, and return our focus again and again to soil health versus dumping nutrition in. Right. Yeah. There's no question that there's studies, uh, lots of them, that show that the chemical nitrogen, when it's applied as a fertilizer, reduces, you know, the rhizophagy, symbiosis, you know, nitrogen fixation, uh, because the plant doesn't have to waste the exudates. That's the reason I give anyway, a little theological thinking. But, you, you know, the plant doesn't have to waste its photosynthetic energy doing this other stuff if it's getting it for free. And it's very clear with cannabis studies that plants that are given artificial chemical nitrogen, uh, they don't they don't do the internal stuff the way the way uh, a natural plant does. Mm-hmm. So, um, at that- and and, oh, and, and again, since we know since we since we know the bacteria uh, influence the terpenoid flavonoids, you know these secondary metabolites and stuff that are in the trichome. Well, you know, if you're growing cannabis, you want those trichomes, you know why, uh, you want those trichomes to have the maximum amount of production in, in them as possible. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there, there is a model, again, we don't call it rhizophagy, we call, I think we call it endosymbiosis or symbiosis, yeah, endosymbiosis uh, that, that involves the trichome. And so uh, the, the predictions that were in the book have actually come true. 
So we're approaching 40 minutes. So we're almost ready to um, um, uh, take a break. But, um, you know, I've already said there's no way that we're going to cover everything <laughs> in the cycle today, right? But right. I know that you are particularly excited to talk about particular aspects of the cycle. So I want to I want to kind of give you this open question. Um, uh, since in set three, we're going to be talking about application of what we've learned in set one and two. Are there, um, um, a part, are there particular parts of the cycle that I have not focused on with my question for you that you're all like, I really want to talk about this because now would be the time for you to say, I really want to talk about this. Yeah, I think I think the uh, the endophytes that go into the plant not, that are not rhizo involved in the rhizophagy cycle, uh, you know, are very very important. Uh, and these these are also uh, taken up from the soil food web uh, conglomeration of bacteria that are, are are there in the rhizosphere, and and they get into the plant uh, through little cracks that form uh, as branches of roots. Uh, are forming there's always a little, you know, little cracks where where these guys can get in and they sneak in through wounds um you know and i suppose some of them i don't i don't know i don't think they come from the rhizophagy cycle itself but they they get into the plant some of them get in through the stomata uh and they and they and they tr can travel around throughout the plant and they impart all of these terrific terrific things to them uh, so they can stimulate growth because they, they they can produce auxins they can produce cyto cytokines uh, they can produce ethylene and gibberellins and jasmonic acids all you know psilis, all of the things that 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 cause plants to grow to form their flowers to drop their flowers for their fruits to ripen these are all bacterially produced uh, and and uh, you know, we've we've learned an awful lot about them, and and now we we're beginning to figure out how to be able to supply either the phytohormones that they produce. For example, with regard to gibberellins, we can now produce gibberellic acid. You can spray your plant with gibberellic acid. Uh, you don't need the bacteria that that create the gibberellins. Um, you know, so we're learning all of these things, and we're beginning to apply them to to different plants, including cannabis. And 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 so these endophytes. Are, are incredibly important in terms of enabling the plant to operate as a plant, produce flowers, drop flowers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to, to increase their, their stress tolerances, uh, to outcompete uh, plants that don't have them, um, to, to change the the, the, the temperatures which they're able to operate in. I got a picture, I think, in the book of, a, of an area in Houston, Texas, lawns, and all of the lawns are covered with snow except for one of them because those grass plants must have an endophyte in it that's changed the freezing point of the water. Oh. Ah! You know, there's some really phenomenal stuff that goes on, and, and, and we're learning so much about this stuff. And there's no question in my mind of all the books that I've ever written – this is the one that's going to need a revised edition at some point. So these endophytes that you're talking about, it sounds like they, since they're not part of the, the rhizophagy cycle, they're really just making a one-way trip. They join the plant and then, and then they stay in the plant, right? They're never, they're never being re-released back into the rhizosphere. Well, some of them are. They go into the seed. So, you know, they're in the flower oh, right. and the next thing you know, they go back into the seed. And so, uh, 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, the, the idea that the bacteria are such opportunists and they, they, they get into the plant where doors are left open and cracks in the root and, you know, wounds and all these different places. You know, it's interesting because on one hand, you're talking about these like beneficial endophytes, which we want in the plant, but this is also the same place that um, like pathogenic bacteria would get into the plant as well. And, um, you know, because I want... To to avoid the the negative bacterias, it's got me thinking in whole new ways about, for example, staking plants uh, near the rhizosphere, right? Because you know there are certainly cages on the outside area which which are you know best for supporting a plant, but a lot of people are you know put the stake in alongside the plant and then um, in in some way bind the plant to the stake, but that means that. That the stake is going into the root zone and probably ripping all sorts of root and root hairs along the way and actually causing trauma to the root zone that is pretty much in, inviting uh, bacteria of, of all forms. And it seems to me like we are rolling the dice when we do that. Well, it could be. And, and you know, some of those stakes like you know those tomato steaks they mm -hmm. got the little green stuff on it is that there to kill bacteria you know and fungus and keep the you know so so yeah i mean i think you got to be very very careful and and experiment i think i think you got to experiment it may very well be that you you if you dip that that steak uh into compost uh let it sit there for a week or so it absorbs the right kind of bacteria that are in the compost that might help your plant. So we got, we've got a lot of research to do here. Right. That's a great idea. I think I might just do that yeah. just as a, as a preventative at this point. Um, right yeah. on. So, all right, cool. So let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, Fast Buds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hembra cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit 
hembragenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. For decades, Americans have enjoyed cannabis flowers and joints and bongs and bowls. And now, with the normalization of cannabis use increasing across the country, we have the opportunity to enjoy smoking cannabis luxuries that simply were not attainable before. North Coast, hand rolls, blunts, cannons, rosin-infused donuts, and canagars available in the state of Michigan. North Coast focuses on flavor over everything else. Instead of growing their own flower, North Coast goes out into the cultivation community and creates relationships with the best growers working with the best new cannabis varieties available. Surely, heavy THC is a factor, but North Coast focuses on aroma, complex terpene profiles, and taste that continues throughout the entire smoking experience. The North Coast team curates flowers like others curate art. They seek out the best talent, build relationships, helps them take their product to the highest levels, and then buys their well-cured flowers in order to hand-roll them just for you. I really like their hand-blown glass tips. And North Coast has branched out beyond Canagars into rosin solventless THCA diamonds and exceptional hash rosin carts for on-the-go cannabis connoisseurs too. North Coast provides you with attainable luxury, offering you an ultra-premium smoking experience at a price that seems reasonable and repeatable. To find out more about North Coast's line of cannabis products, visit their Instagram at northcoast.rolling. That's northcoast.rolling. And when in Michigan, ask for North Coast at your favorite shop, North Coast. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. 
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. So during the first set, we learned a lot about bacteria generally. Then during the second set, we got really specific about the rhizophagy cycle and um, how the bacteria is interacting with the root zone of the plant, but also at the top of the plant too, which is astonishing. And this third set, um, we are going to focus more on how to use this understanding that we're starting to get about bacteria to um, make our gardens more successful, higher yielding, and resilient. So um, so I want to start, Jeff, with um, with commercial fertilizers. Now, you, you touched on it briefly earlier. Uh, I don't know if you have more to say about it, but but I know that um, you, know, you have mentioned to me time and time again that um, that commercial fertilizers that are are not just straight up soil amendments, fertilizers that are, are you know, um, super nutritive because of how they were made um, actually inhibit the rhizophagy cycle and you know generally make our plants like kind of druggy salt dependent but i'd like to hear what you have to say about how commercial fertilizers inhibit the rhizophagy cycle and and what we should be avoiding sure well uh what happens when you put a commercial fertilizer into the rhizosphere is you change the composition of that rhizosphere because there's salts, some of the some of the microbes, bacteria are killed. Uh, the water drains out of them uh, to dilute the the salt, and the salt goes into them in osmosis, and they and they and so they blow up. Uh, in in other instances, there are microbes that literally will go crazy for the chemical that you're synthetic that you've put down, and will change the composition or the ratio of the bacterium and other microbes in the area. And that's not good either. You remember, we want to we want to let the plant be in control. The plant should be able to choose what it wants and get as much of what it wants uh, when it wants it. And when you when you change the ratio, when you kill off some of the things that are needed, the plant has to react in a way that either uh, causes them to have to reproduce reproduce the exudate in order to read regenerate the, the, the microbe that it needs uh, or it just just gives up or it just simply says I can coast along on what I'm getting here I don't need to do these other things and it, and it loses the benefits of having an end of fight causing stimulation uh, you know causing the plant to be able to handle stress better and all those kinds of things and so you end up with a weaker plant and then you throw in the fact that you've started the path of destroying the structure of the soil. We've only got 60 years left of soil using the current techniques. Uh, you know, every every time we we harvest and rototill, da, 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 we destroy the soil structure, and we are we are headed to big trouble. And it's it's going to be the next generation that's going to suffer that trouble. That's why all of these bacterial situations, rhizophagy, endophytes, are I think the holy grail for the, com the the conversion of chemical agriculture 
to, uh, uh, you know, the organic system that you and I know and love. So, you know, we talk primarily about natural farming and regenerative um, gardening techniques on this show. But, you know, there's no doubt that we are going to attract some people who use salt fertilizers for this Mm -hmm. episode because the information is so rare to get. And so I'm going to ask you an impossible question um, and and and, and say just like, just give me a taste for those people, (laughs) right? So for the people who are here to learn about bacteria, but they use, you know, um, salt fertilizers or, or AB style fertilizers, or, or maybe they've got fields and they're using, you know, large branded commercial fertilizers. You know, what is the alternative? What, what are we trying to suggest that they use instead of that stuff? Right. Well, of course, I've got a, a lot of stuff at the end of the book that, you know, individual bacteriums, names I can't pronounce. Uh, so so people need to take a look at that. But, but uh, you know, there are some very distinct uh, kinds of things that we can put on our plants and in our soil. Uh, uh, you know, one of them with regard to uh, cannabis is, is used for wheat and other things as azospirillium. And, and we can spray that on our plants and we can water it down into our soil uh, and, and it, it, it ends up helping the plant. Uh, so you don't need to use a chemical. You've got a, a, living, a living bacterium supplying the food uh, that the plant needs. Uh, a lot of cannabis growers are beginning to, to, to do experiments with azospirillium. Um, and so you have to adjust yourself. So, for, for example, you wouldn't want to use neem oil because uh, wouldn't the neem oil kill off whatever you're putting on your philosphere? And uh, does neem oil maybe doesn't do such great things for uh, uh, you know the the bacterium in the rhizosphere? Now, there's a time when you need it, perhaps, uh, but not all the time. So, yeah, I think you know we just have to we. We're going to have to just do lots and lots and lots of experiments. But if you're growing individual crops, uh, you know, there are now, and again, I list some of them in the book, there are studies on individual endophytes or groups of endophytes that help uh, specific crops, you know, trees, uh, uh, vegetables, tomatoes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and we're beginning to get a feel for the kinds of bacterium we can, or bacteria we can add to the soil and to these plants and make things work. And, and, and it makes me think about compost teas. I mean, for years and years and years, I've been using compost tea. I know they work. I know compost teas work. I've, I've done before and afters. I've done bad soil, good soil. Uh, but a lot of time people don't get results with compost teas. And that may be because they've already got all the components that the compost tea supplies to a, to a system that doesn't have all the components. And so therefore they don't see any differences. Um, it's all tied together and there's going to be tremendous amounts of research. Whoa, to be able to go back to grad school and study some of these questions. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about that often on the show about what time, uh, what a great time it is to be somebody in their late teens or early twenties and starting off with these interests because between yeah. between the creeping normalization and the access to lab equipment that we cannabis folks have now, I mean, we're about to enter the golden age of research. Um, so, uh, so there's also different qualities of compost tea, right? Where, right, um, right. you know, a lot, a lot of people, you know, they're, they, they, they're relying on their compost tea, but then they put it on their microscope and, you know, it's, it's nutrition, but no life. And so, right. you know, just because something is called compost tea, there is a difference between, you know, a, a, 
I don't know, inert compost tea, a dead compost tea that's just full of nutrition Mm -hmm. versus a compost tea that is chock full of all these living bits. Just like you can have, uh, uh, you know, dead soil, which we generally call dirt, right? There's dirt that's not bioactive. And then after you spend some time and, and you're, you start adding, you know, bac- bacteria and mycelium and compost teas and, and, and fortify it properly, then you have living soil. So, so composts in, are in that same way. So I'm going to follow up with, um, you know, are there particular things that we can compost and make compost tea out of that will be, uh, uh, support of endophytic bacteria? Well, you know, compost is full of endophytes um, and and so is vermicompost. I think, you know, the book talks a little teeny bit about the differences. There are different sets in in one versus the other. um, And what you put into your compost is going to end up with different stuff coming out of your compost, as as you can imagine. Um, So I, I dream about what if I was able to to make a compost out of my cannabis plant wastes and then use that on my cannabis. Doesn't that supply the right kinds of bacteria? I, I, I suspect it does. I don't, I don't know for sure, but sure makes sense to me, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so there, there, there are things that we can be looking at uh, in terms of specificity. And again, the research that's coming and the instrumentation that we're going to require in order to be able to tell whether we're getting there. It's kind of important. Oh, you mean like so the, te- the, mean like the technology so that we can measure this? Yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we can measure it now, and it just costs millions and millions of dollars. You know, it just costs a lot of money to send away a sample to get its DNA. Um, it's getting cheaper and cheaper. So, so now we're all in love with endophytic bacteria and we want to attract as much of it as we can to our root zone, um, uh, by using natural farming techniques. Uh, is it possible to, um, apply endophytic bacteria? Like, like, can we, can we, can we amend with, uh, endophytic bacteria? Yes. Uh, let me give you the easiest example, uh, rhizobium. Uh, you know, the, 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 the nitrogen fixing bacteria that form nodules, um, uh, you know, that's, that, that's, we apply that, uh, those bacteria as a result of ethylene, I might add, end up inside a little nodule in the plant, uh, that those are endophytic bacteria. So, so yes, we're going to be able to supply them like, like that, uh, there are, there is even a, a series of discussions about being able to, uh, supply endophytic bacteria that can live in the in the plant, jump off the plant, and kill the weeds that are around the plant, and then jump back into the plant again. Wow. Whoa! Yeah. So there's all of these things are coming, um, and, and we just have to be able to identify better. Dr. James White could tell you, as as can a handful of scientists around the world, that if you apply X Y uh, uh, bacteria to wheat. You end up with better wheat, uh, or or ZD bacteria to bananas. You end up with better bananas. Uh, the research simply hasn't been done on the cannabis because of the laws that we face in the United States. About to change. If my dear classmate Chuck Schumer uh, has his way, we're going to have good research on cannabis finally. And this is one of the biggest things they ought to be researching. So how does the nitrogen fixing that we in cannabis cultivation uh, do, um, how, you know, most people call it cover crops, even though that, that word doesn't 
perfectly fit. Right. But, but, you know, we, we, we grow something on the top and then we chop it, we let it drop. Maybe we cover it with some compost or some more soil so that, um, you know, the plant itself is pulling nitrogen from the air and then putting it down to the roots and then we kill the plant. And then that makes the, the, um, nitrogen available to, um, other participants in the, um, in the container or in the soil, if you're on a field, um, mm-hmm. how does this sort of nitrogen fixing um, play a role in this bacteria story? Well, we don't we don't call it nitrogen fixing, but that's what's going on with these rhizophagy bacteria. They're fixing nitrogen and giving it to the plant. Uh, same thing with the endosymbiosis in the in the uh, uh, in the phyllosphere. I mean, those bacteria uh, inside those trichomes are fixing nitrogen. And giving it to the plant. Um, wow. <laughs> so, so you, you know, what we what we really want to do is be able to introduce these kinds of nitrogen fixing bacteria uh, that don't necessarily form nodules into various kinds of plants. And we're, you know, Bayer and all those big guys, uh, you know, who 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 we accuse of all sorts of terrible things because they do some terrible things. They're studying all of this stuff like crazy now. And I, I would predict at some point in time, that's what they'll be selling. Uh, you know, they'll be selling bacteria that can go into a plant or fungi that can go into a plant. They already sell, you know, mycorrhizal fungi that can go into the plant and fix nitrogen. Wow. Um, wouldn't that be incredible if you if you could grow a tomato plant or a cannabis plant without adding any nitrogen? Because mm. you've got enough fixation going on right there. For, wow. for those who haven't picked it up out of context yet, would you define philosphere, please? Philosphere is the is the uh, rhizosphere around the leaf. It's that li- it's that area along the leaf surface where there's microbes and dust and you know little little things that are that are there. So that's we call it the rhizosphere around the root, uh, and it's the philosphere around around leaves. And that's primarily where the bacteria that finds its way into our seeds to start the next generation. That's where it comes from is the philosphere. So, it, so this, the seed is being formed in the flower and the bacteria that is in the flower, which is, um, you know, I'm sure there's some variety, but it's also the same bacteria that are in the root zone. It's jumping into that seed, if you will, so that it is present when the seed is germinated down the line. Yeah, both both are both go into the seed. So it's you know it's cap- you're capable of taking you know the soil bacteria that become endophytes and go in. They can move through the flow. And, you know they they can move around inside the plant, um, and they do move around inside the plant. But but yeah, so you get a, you, it's called vertical and horizontal transfer. Hmm, um, and, yeah, so is you there, definitely is, get some from the air. Is there anything that we can do to attract more beneficial bacteria to the rhizosphere, right? Like if the, like other than having a healthy plant, you know, like, 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 like some people, right. They just, they want to, they want to dump molasses on everything. Right. Um, is, is there, right, is right. there, you know, and then, you know, I am probably more in a category that I use too much commer- uh, Korean natural farming preps. Like, you know, if they say one, one to a thousand, I'm loving it at one at two fifty, Right. And I, I know I shouldn't be yeah. doing that but it's really hard not to um so so in that kind of dumb mindset i asked this question and perhaps there's a smart answer um is is there anything that we can top amend um along the um stem of the plant that will find its way down to the root zone that will you know bring in more beneficial bacteria 
Yeah, again, an area where some great research has to be done, but using soil from old growth cannabis mm. uh, and, and putting that down uh, as a as a way of transferring the bacterium that uh, or bacteria that were produced on that previous plant is probably the way to go. Right on. So a great, great reason to, you know, reuse last year's pots, right. keep your soil, right. you know, the, the whole no-till vibe that, that you know, right. we're, we're strong proponents of here. Yeah, right. exactly. But it goes one step even further. I mean, you could, you could actually take some of that soil from a pot and put it into a new pot mm-hmm. um, as opposed to planting the seed in the old pot. Right, you can you can you can use it as a top dress like you would compost. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, follow. inoculant. Yeah, you're inoculant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good too. Um, all right, so l- let's 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 flip that risk. All right, so we've been talking about things to do to pres- uh, to preserve the or excuse me to attract more bacteria. Um, what are the actions that we can take that will kill all the bacteria in the pot? I'm assuming like at the top of the list is heat and water, but I don't know. So so what are those variables? Yeah, oh, definitely heat. Um, uh, but even even with regard to heat, a lot of these things will will form, uh, uh, you know, into into uh, oh god, the word they'll cyst up endospores. Yeah, endospores. Yeah, the endospores. They form endospores and they're able to withstand the heat, uh, which is how a lot of the bacterium that we like go through the composting process uh, and still survive. Um, so so you know you've got you've got that situation going on. Uh, I don't know the answer. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So, so I'm going to ask you another question that you may not have an yeah. answer, and it's a follow up to the heat one, though, right? So, so mm-hmm. uh, you know, those of us who are in containers, our our soil is at much more risk than people who are in the ground, right? Because people who are in the actual ground, the roots can go deep where it's cooler. They get the geothermal advantages. It's wonderful both during the summer and in the fall when it starts to cool down and the roots are kept warmer, right? So that's awesome. But but lots of us are in containers and on a day. Um, where it's like you know ninety five to a hundred and a five, um, the 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 plant containers cook just sitting in the sun, and if we're in a greenhouse that's not supported with air conditioning, it might even be even hotter. Do you have an idea how much heat it's going to take be- before the bacteria start to cyst up? Because like okay, they might be able to survive the heat, but we don't want them to have to go through all of that hassle of of cysting up and then and then realizing it's safe again and then and then and you know like we're slowing down our plant growth so i'm curious on these days that that it's you know 95 to 105 and our and our and our containers are getting really hot am i wiping out my bacteria uh you know it's interesting question again i don't know the real answer it's you know intuitively it seems to me that some of them are multiplying some of them are going into a dormant situation as a result of the heat. Um, and uh, I'm, I, I wonder whether the plant adjusts its exudates, et cetera, et cetera, in order to be able to try to, to fix that situation. I don't know. Um, obviously, the, the thing that controls how well a plant grows temperature-wise is the enzymatic activity inside the plant. And it's around, I think it's 76 to 79 degrees is ideal. Uh, and it has more to do with the enzymes uh, produced. And, and some of those enzymes are obviously produced by bacteria. So, so it's a good question. Again, I hate to give the answer, more research. Yeah, for, well, that's fair. Like, and, 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 and also, 
you we've been, we've all been reading you for so long and you've done so much research both on bacteria generally and also our favorite plant the cannabis plant that if somebody's going to make an educated guess i'm comfortable with it being you right Be, because <laughs> you know uh i i would i would be a lot more suspicious of like generalized bro science that someone learned by you know from somebody who taught them to grow. Cause I certainly know I got a b- bunch of bad information from my mentor, even though I got a lot of great information too. You know, sure. I kind of, we're kind of at the point in, in cannabis culture where we're trying to figure out which is which, right? So, right. so, so oh, here, absolutely. here's a similar question, slightly twisted. Um, so, so far we've talked about all these things that we can do to encourage bacteria generally, but we know that there are beneficial bacterias and then pathogenic bacterias. Are there there are things that we can do to keep bad bacteria from invading to, to limit it somehow? You know, there must be, uh, which is why people keep sterile. Uh, you know, not the way I say sterile, their greenhouse situation, they don't let any, you know, any insects in that can vector bad bacteria, et cetera, uh, uh, onto plants. And you're very careful. And, you know, you don't smoke inside the, the you know, touch uh, tobacco, that kind of stuff. You know, it's so you can clearly spread these bacteria around, no question about it. And, and you probably have to be very, very careful not – you don't probably. You have to be careful not to bring in a bad a bad bacterium, you know, that might cause some kind of a, a you know, a mildew, et cetera, et cetera, although those are usually fungus. Um, so it is possible to, you know, cause some real serious problems. Fortunately, I don't think it happens that often. And clearly- Damping off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It sounds like we also this is yet another reason to keep a clean um a clean growing environment, right? Cleaning your tools, cleaning the floor, you know, not taking mm-hmm. things off the floor, putting it in your pot, things like that as well because right. we right. don't want to upset the balance between the beneficial bacteria and the pathogenic bacteria. Right. And even even things like I th- you know, I talk a little bit about, about it in the book, it's sort of counterintuitive when you harvest your plants for seeds as opposed to harvesting it for, uh, uh, you know, the cannabis content. Uh, you know, how do those seeds normally grow? We, you know, we tend to take those seeds right away. Do we let the plant fall to the ground, you know, and, you know, uh, prepare the seed even more for growth, et cetera? You know, it's, it's something to be thinking about because there's bacteria everywhere and they're so important. Uh, so, I, you know, I like the idea of letting my, letting my m- plants mature to the point where the the flowers fall off and the seeds get a little dirty in the soil and, you know, they pick up a little bit more bacteria, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of an interesting stuff. And, and, and it's, it's thinking of the seeds, by the way, we, did we talk about the, cause you mentioned the heat, you, you know, the idea that we dry our seeds out, we usually put seeds into a jar. We put in this little packet that we got from a, an old film canister or, or a Bovita, you know, to, 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 to dry out the, uh, uh, you know, the, oh, you're talking the about desiccant. Yeah, desiccant. Yeah, yeah, desiccant. You know, and we don't want to do that. We want we want those bacteria to live. They're living inside those those seeds. Now, we don't want them to live to the point where they cause germination. Uh, you know, or where they multiply like crazy and cause things to go nuts inside the seed. Uh, but those seed coats actually let in oxygen, a little bit of moisture, and so we don't want to let the seeds sit in hot and in in dry, dry situations. Uh, one of the things I sort of picked up out of the book so where where would you yeah well that was headed there anyway uh where, where, how would you recommend storing them then uh you know most people keep them either in the fridge or the freezer to to kind of stall biological activity um what are your thoughts 
Well, you know, I think the fridge is probably okay. Freezer, probably, I don't know whether that's that's so good. And again, so again, you know, the ultimate answer is research. Um, uh, I just keep mine in room temperature in a in, in a container that's not ne necessarily fully airtight. Not necessarily fully airtight. Or, or if I keep it, or if I keep it in something like a film can, you know, an old film canister, uh, I don't use a desiccant. Mm -hmm. Um. So, as like. I want to hit one 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 thing that you just said about having the seeds drop to the ground, right? And and right. I, and, and I'm <laughs> I understand already that you're probably going to say the answer is more research. So <laughs> your 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 thought process through that is that um uh when we are making seeds in sterile environments, we might be missing out on some um you know bacterial or fungal or some kind of protections that come from the 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 seed falling either out of the flower or the plant collapsing onto the ground and then interacting with the biology of the of the topsoil is i think that's where you were headed with it and yeah, and, yeah. and if we're and if we're you know if we're kind of st stacking your estimated guesses right now um uh, uh do you have ideas of what those would be like do you think they would be more bacterial or more fungal uh like well like what are you've you've researched well, both what are your riff yeah. what are you, you going to riff on i think they i think they'd be both mm. i think they'd be both mm -hmm. uh you know, it's interesting. Some of the uh, some of the rhizophagy uh, microorganisms, in addition to bacteria, are yeasts, which are fungi. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, they go through the same thing, and in fact, they they bleed, they they bud as they reproduce. That's what happens to these L forms. They bud like like like. Uh, uh, Fungi in the stuff. There's there's so much stuff here. That yeah. It just drives me crazy. That uh, word bleed uh, is worth pointing out. It's and it, 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 you didn't say bleed. It's actually bleeding. No. And when I read it in the book, yeah. I'm like, well, that there's a there's a weird word. Yeah, there are a couple, couple of good crossword words in this book. <laughs> uh, not to mention all of the bacterium. And 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 I, I I think I should mention just quickly that there are these bacteria names are so hard to pronounce. Uh, there's so many different ones. Uh, you know, that I go out of my way to tell people, don't memorize anything. By the time you get to the end of the book, you get a little bit better familiarity. The stuff is in the book. When you when you need to look it up, you can go look it up. Where we're headed, I think, is a situation where we're going to have labels for products that we're going to be able to buy that can contain various different kinds of bacteria. And hopefully you'll be able to go to the index of the book and say, yeah, that's the one I want. Um, it's coming. There's no question that's coming. I mean, you can buy azospirillium now. I mean, there's a bunch of these things that I mentioned in the book that you can buy on a farmer level. You and I have trouble finding them, but it's beginning to trickle down into this area. And as more and more people, including farmers, understand rhizophagy, more and more of this stuff will become available and used in general farming and gardening and growing. You mentioned this aside uh, in the book. You said that um, you're, you're talking about uh, fertilizers in general, and, you're, and you point out that phosphorus is no longer allowed in many formulations. And then you say bye bye right. NPK fertilizers? Question mark. So, so right. tell us a little about that. I, I had not I, 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 since I don't use them. I didn't really. I wasn't aware. Sure. Sure. Well, we're reaching feet, uh, peak phosphate uh, phosphorus uh, on this earth. Uh, some people think we again, you know, 60, 70 years left. Um, and, and 
partly as a result of that, partly as a result of the fact that phosphorus has caused so much pollution in terms of our water systems and eutrophication, et cetera, et cetera, and partly because it's so locked up in the soil so quickly that our many people's soil already contains phosphorus, you can no longer buy lawn food in, I think, almost every state with a middle number that's not zero. Wow. Uh, that you just can't buy. There's no phosphorus lawn food anymore. They've taken that middle number out. Um, uh, it's for, for, for the reasons I mentioned. It's a waste. Uh, it's already there, uh, and we're running out of it. So, so it's it's fascinating. Now, the end of endophytic situation enhances. So, some of these bacteria, as we noted before, are 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 phosphates uh, solubilizing. Uh, 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 and encouraging uh, the use of uh, or the breakdown of phosphate, bring them into the fungi, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to get our phosphates as a result of our fungi and our bacteria. So, so as far as like final thoughts go, Jeff, you know, I, w I was going to set you up here at the end um, with what you actually ended up opening the interview with about um, teaching bacteria in schools and how they they, right. they taught they teach so much about dinosaurs and yet we don't have those except for maybe chickens and uh, and yet um, <laughs> and yet you know bacteria is is everywhere and and kids don't learn anything about it really and so um, I just wanted to know like, I know that. Uh, you are having read the book and and it really does capture your personality i mean there's so many <laughs> so many jokes and puns and offhand things here and there you, you can really tell that when you write a book you really embrace it and become it and so um and so so to to wrap up i just want to hear um you know what your message is about the the realization that the um um uh, rhizophagy cycle exists coming since 2000 and eight and our new awareness of bacteria from uh from uh from james white that like he's had you know having a hard time getting the message out and yet now here your book is going to present bacteria in living soil and its role in the soil food web in a way that's going to reach an entirely different audience as the other books in your series have done so so why don't you why don't you wrap us up with a summation here of, of your thoughts and your vibes Sure. Well, you know, this book was so much fun to write because it was such new information to me. Uh, and, and, and I'm just a gardener. I mean, you know, I write these books for gardeners, you and me and cannabis growers or gardeners, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I just, I, the more I got into it, the more excited I got about it, partly because I don't know anything about bacteria. You know, I didn't learn an awful lot. They're just too damn small for people to study in high school. That's the thing. So so when I came across a quote uh, from a song by a guy named Andy McKinnon, uh, McKinnon uh, from Seattle, he, uh, I think he's from Seattle. He's a Washington State Native Plant uh, Society member. Uh, it sort of encapsulated everything for me. And lately I've been catching my wife going around singing this little this little little ditty uh, and it goes i feel it in my branches i feel it in my roots endophytes are in me from my flowers to my roots and they are they're everywhere and because they're small bacterium there's billions of them everywhere and they're doing so much important work that we don't know about and can't see uh, but we can feel that it's going on 
and so it's really, really important that we as as growers carry that feeling forward. I mean, what what I try to get people to do is pay attention to these unusual things that are going on inside plants. These are not dumb, inanimate telephone poles sitting in the ground. Just because they can't walk and run and punch people in the face and do all this doesn't mean that they're these stupid, inanimate objects. They're fascinating, and they've learned to cooperate with the microbes and the bacteria is one, uh, you know, the, the main one that I'm talking about, obviously, in the book, in a way that is so fascinating that it makes them different entities. You know, the, you, don't, you shouldn't be looking at your plant for the flower or for the leaf. Uh, you should be looking at your plant for the processes that go on that make that flower and make that leaf. That's what, that's what it's all about not the end result that you can harvest. Thank you so much, Jeff, for returning to Shaping Fire. Uh, I always have a great time whenever we talk, whether or not it's, you know, at a, at a conference or, or somewhere where our paths cross or, or the times that we, you know, we really focus and talk like this. Um, it, <laughs> it's always such a joy. I, I, I had the smile on my face throughout, you know, almost the entire time and um and and thank you for the role you played in translating a lot of this heavy duty science into terms and stories and anecdotes that a uh, lay folk like me who are very interested but don't have a hard science background um are able to enjoy it ourselves so that we can use it you know for our gardens to to grow medicine and for the you know regenerative good of the planet so thank you my friend yeah, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. We always have a great time. Uh, and I look forward to doing it again as people develop more questions and as more and more uh, information is discovered about these endophytic bacteria. Fantastic. All right. So um, if this is your first time learning of uh, Jeff Lowenfels, you are probably not following his Instagram yet, which is one of the best ways. Jeff doesn't have like a huge online life, uh, but if you want to follow along, it is a good place to go. And Jeff's Instagram is Gardener Jeff really simple, Gardener Jeff. Um, but more importantly, uh, now perhaps you would like to read the book, which like I said, we're, we're really, you know, we kind of hit it superficially yet lovingly in this, uh, you know, a little bit more than an hour and a half. And uh, if you want to get it, um, you can get it on Amazon now. It is in uh, pre-release. So I guess they're like pre-orders right now. Um, it actually mm -hmm. comes out physically on September 27th. And the, the title of it is is teeming with bacteria. And, um, and, and so you can just search that, but, uh, sometimes it doesn't come up as quickly in the search box since it hasn't been released yet. So there's also a direct link on the Shaping Fire website for this episode, uh, that's teeming with bacteria. And while you're there, if you have not uh, read them yet, um, go back and check out Jeff's back catalog, um, or originally, um, uh, teeming with microbes, then teeming with nutrients and and then teaming with fungi. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. 
On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.